0: If if tonight is your first night, and you didn't come last week, raise your hand. All right. Okay, thank you. Thank you for being here. Glad you're here. Please make sure that you have notes uh, from Bo and a Bible. And for those of you who missed some nights, when when we are done, I'm willing to send you the totality of my notes. They're being built as the class unfolds. Um, And I can email them to you if you email me during the week. But often it's just easier if I can get it to you at the end of class, just so so you know. So we are in um, the Word right now, looking together at what the Bible teaches regarding the doctrine of humanity. What does the Bible say it means to be human? And uh, there's a fancy way of describing this. We're doing a biblical theological anthropology, doctrine of humanity, and the name of the class is Imago Christi. And we began last week by looking at Romans 8, how God's aim in the gospel, his ultimate plan for the world, is to craft all believers into the image of Jesus Christ. That is the end for which God works. And so, last week, we spent the first half of our time together laying the foundation and source of our authority, which is the Bible, and so we talked about why the Bible is our authority. One thing I want to remind us of, of the six different things about Scripture we looked at, is the sufficiency of Scripture, because the sufficiency of Scripture is um, arguably the doctrine of Scripture most under attack in our day and age. So, in our day and age, it's believed that the Bible is insufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness, whereas Peter tells us the Bible is sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we're going to see, Lord willing, later this evening, that in some cases people want to use natural sciences as the grid and lens through which we read the Bible, thereby conforming the Bible to natural sciences. And one thing that we're seeing all over social media, and in politics, and more in the last three years, is that people want to use the social sciences to conform and interpret the Bible, rather than what we've inherited, namely that Scripture interprets Scripture. There is not an outside source that's needed to make sense of what the Bible says. The Bible itself is self-interpreting, and we use sound hermeneutical principles, interpretive principles, to understand it. So... We're leaning into that tonight, the sufficiency of scripture. So last week we ended our time, we didn't get through all the notes. We began on page 5 asking the question, what or who has the authority to define and decide what it is to be human? And we began by looking at the academy and how in academia, if you look at the top of page 5, if you have those notes, we looked at the different disciplines in various colleges within a university, such as philosophy, anthropology, psychology, sociology, political science, legal studies, economics, history, human, environmental, geography, and more, all seek to explain how the world came to be, why the world is the way it is, how the world works, what's wrong with it, what will make it right. And basically, that's all in replacement of what the Bible says, that the first Twelve chapters of the Bible answer all of those questions, maybe some in seed form, and they'll grow across the text of Scripture. And we ended last week on page seven, actually eight, looking at the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age. So all of this is in the foreground, as we're going to talk about what the Bible says, what it means to be human, we need to think about the air that we breathe, what we have been born into as Westerners, and what is especially being um, breathed, as it were, the spirit of the age through social media, politics, through basically the Bay Area, L.A., New York, and Washington, D.C. As the four cultural social hubs of exporting to the world, and so we saw postmodernism individualism, subjectivism, materialism, all these isms. We talked about neo-paganism and neo-gnosticism, and we didn't get to the juicy one, neo-Marxism. So that's where we're going to begin this evening, the bottom of page 8. Who does not have page 8 and 9? of oh, the people who are, yeah, okay. That will be on the screen for you. So this number six, what we're thinking about is the spirit of the age, right? So there's that old saying attributed to Aristotle, does a a fish know that it's in water? And so there's a way of thinking, of living, moving, and having our being in this world that we adopt through art and song and protest and shows and movies and more. And we don't realize that we are drinking it in, breathing it in, imbibing it, and more. And so where we left off last week is that we have seen, though it might seem it's new on the uh, televised social front, it's, it's, it's not new and it's this perspective of neo-Marxism. You, you can see here on page 8 in the notes, if you don't have them, I have lumped together and I'm going to explain why I lumped this together, neo-Marxism slash critical theory and its subcategories. So just if you've ever heard the phrase neo-Marxism, raise your hand. Most of you. If you have heard the phrase critical theory, raise your hand. Thanks. So it's important to distinguish critical race theory. has been all over the news the past few years. But it's important to understand that the R in CRT can be replaced with other letters. So um, feminist theory, uh, legal studies, all manner of LGBTQ plus studies and more. So critical theory, so we'll talk about this in a moment, critical theory has many subcategories, not just critical race theory, it's one species of it. Slash, diversity, equity, inclusion, you've heard that phrase perhaps, you probably had training in it, maybe in your job, and intersectionality. Now these are all distinct, but they're interrelated. And the reason I've lumped them together here as the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, is because at the uh, um, clicking the channel level, scrolling through the news, just sitting on our couch, watching movies and listening to protests and how reporters explain things and more, not at the academic level, but at just the social level, this is a multi-headed beast of an idea, so it's, I'm lumping it together from a cultural sp- perspective because it's lumped together rather than treating it as an academic discipline. So this is the foil for much of what we're going to look at in the coming weeks. So my aim right now is not to say all there is to say, but rather when we get into different issues regarding what the Bible teaches about what it means to be human, then I will cherry pick different aspects ...of what's taught in this um, monstrous, beastly, neo-Marxist, critical theory, intersectionality, DEI, LGBTQ idea. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. But here's what I want you to know, because this is talking about the zeitgeist of the age, the spirit of the age. So, many of these... I, d- I don't want to get in So, okay, the purpose of this class is not to get entirely into these weeds... But what I want you to know is the reason that neo-Marxism is called neo-Marxism is because it's neo. And what does neo mean? New. It's a super fancy way of saying new. It's new Marxism. And so you know that old Marxism from Marx himself was a godless pagan ideology that he wanted to develop a philosophy to explain the world that got rid of the Christian worldview and Jesus Christ. And so, at root, this is a belief system. It's a worldview. That, that's why it's in these notes. It's, it's a worldview that's gaining much public traction. It's in our socio political discourse. And it's a worldview that explains how the world works, it's a worldview that explains what's wrong with the world and what will make it right. It has its own versions of sin and its own versions of salvation and more, though that language is not necessarily used, but though some do use it in a non-biblical sense. That's why we're looking at it. So neo-Marxism is an idea that developed in the academy post-World War II, uh, people leaving Germany, it's called the Frankfurt School, more, there's there's a lot of stuff in there. I brought show-and-tell books. I don't recommend that you buy any of them. So at academic level, right, so this is critical theory, a user-friendly guide. It is not friendly, and it's not really good for users. This is critical theory, key concepts, and then this is the Oxford very short introduction to critical theory. Maybe if you get one, get this one, if you want to know what's what's being taught there. None of these are friendly to, supportive of Christianity in any way, and are not written by... Christians critiquing these views, they're written by academic practitioners of these views. And so if you're taking um, high-level courses, these are some of the books, not the small one probably, but these ones would be purchased and you'd have to read from it. So from these books, what I'm trying to communicate here is that the fundamental, right here, an overlapping belief among all of these ideas is that the chief sin of society is oppression in some form of another, right? So old Marx couched everything in economic terms. Who had the cash? Who didn't? Who had the resources? Who didn't? And when that was proven to be a bankrupt idea, think Russia and Italy and more, Germany didn't do so well, all the different iterations of it, um... But the fundamental idea then that shifted in neo-Marxism is that it's not it's an economic issue, it's a social issue. So the idea of neo-Marxism is about classes of people, it's social. And critical theory and its subcategories adopts this ideology in many ways. And you have to, when you hear the term critical theory, critical race theory, it's not a monolithic, everybody believes this one thing about it. Practitioners, practitioners and academics within the field will debate internally about meaning. So I'm trying to give you the generic ideas that for the most part would mostly be agreed with and how at the popular level now it's understood. So sin on this view, and I'm using sin in the biblical sense, is the what's wrong with society is oppression. So the problem that needs to get fixed is oppressors need to stop oppressing and it's the oppressed who need to cause that to happen. So these belief systems are activist by nature, meaning they don't just call for a belief system that you need to actually act on those beliefs, and so you need to somehow, one way or another, overthrow the oppressor. So salvation, if sin is oppression by the oppressor, salvation comes from liberation of the oppressed, liberating them from the oppressor. So you hear these terminologies like empowered I mean that is just that's been the buzzword for 20 30 years cover of magazines. everybody needs to be empowered for something to do something and if you think about why that language is used it's the what's implicit is that this person is somehow oppressed and doesn't have power to which they should do and therefore they need to be empowered Someone needs to empower them to throw off the shackles of the oppressor. It's just lingua franca and it's what everybody. It's on the cover of the magazines and more. So the oppressed needs to be empowered. They need to speak truth to power. Um, The oppressed deserve equal outcome of those in power, the oppressors. But that's not really true because they're going to say they want equal outcome. But really, the oppressed want to become those in power and be able to do the oppressing. More than that, it's the overthrow of the oppressor by putting the oppressed in the power and privilege. So as I said a moment ago, so see, it's activist in nature. What we see a lot, just this is at the street level, literally, with riots, signs being held, silences, violence. It's activist in nature. It's not enough to denounce oppressors until one is actively and vocally engages in work to undermine and overthrow the oppressors. One remains an oppressor or a puppet of the oppressor. So, when you get into critical race theory, to be an anti-racist by their definition in their books means that you must be an activist. You can't just say, I'm not a racist, Okay, I'm not going to go down the rabbit trail, but you, you have to actively work against to overthrow powers of oppression in its varieties. So you can plug and play the idea of race with LGBTQ+, and all manner of things. If you are not a trans activist and for transgender, then you are a transphobe, right? There's this uh, language is weaponized to say that you are afraid of trans people and therefore, on their view, subhuman, and you need to be removed and things along those lines. So it's activist in nature, which explains then... It's also economic because you see how Coke, right, Pepsi Cola, food brands, Apple, more all get on the woke wagon. Another language for this, but it, it's it's used in different ways. Where it is economic that you must actively celebrate, be against, you must be activist to overthrow the oppressor. Intersectionality. Again, these are going to come up again, so I know I'm flying super fast using terminology and whatnot, and we'll come to questions in a few minutes. So intersectionality, um, how many of you have heard this term before? Okay, it's most of us. So intersectionality, you can see the word intersection in there. And this is a, this is also a word that arrives, is born out of critical legal theory in law schools, saying critical theory, and then it's been co-opted and used in various other forms ...of critical theory, whether it's race, feminism, LGBTQ. So the in this case, for intersectionality, it's the belief that the more markers of oppression a person has... ...the uh, greater their voice and the greater their truth is to speak truth to power. So for example, all women have one intersection against men. Men are in power... Women are oppressed by men, so women have one intersection. But a black woman will have two intersections because she is oppressed both by men and white women by virtue of a white woman being white. And then if you have a um, brown trans woman, they have three intersections because they're not white, and they aren't cisgender, identifying with the gender they were assigned at birth. And so they have three intersections. And then, and then this maze just goes on forever and ever and ever. Um, and it's all a way of saying that you can't say anything to the person who has intersections. You need to shut up and not speak because you don't have their truth. And so it's weaponized. It's a a weaponized uh, ideology that you'll see all over the place. So E, what all of these various and diverse groups share in common is a common enemy. And the common enemy is the cultural hegemony. It's a fancy word. Hegemony. It's super fun to say. How many of you have ever heard the term hegemony? It's not hegemony. Which is fun to say, but it's hegemony. That is a it's a it's a technical term to describe those who are in the position of power or the cultural majority, whatever culture you're 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 talking about. So it could be at a societal level or um, a belief system, a religious level, or more. So what all of these share in common, whether someone's about feminism. Um, race, LGBTQ+, they're, um, they're getting into, you know, fat studies and fat shaming and doctors can't say someone should lose weight to, include, to improve their blood profile, their blood markers, because it is mean and hurts feelings and that's on an intersection they don't share and more. So the cultural hegemony is the majority group in positions of power and privilege who dominate culture and society. It's a really important term. So why is society the way it is on this view? Because those who are the majority and those who are in power say it is so. And because it's postmodernism and truth is relative, whoever is in the majority just determines what truth is on this view. So who is the cultural hegemony? Well, if you look here, the U.S. census in 2020... In America, um, those who are identified as white, it's Caucasian, is 57.8%. And that is the lowest the majority has ever been since censuses have been taking in the United States. And you can see on down Hispanics, blacks, Asians, and then they just do other without respect to other nationalities or ethnicities rather. So you can see then white people are the cultural hegemony. In America, really in the West, but in America in particular. Okay, let's take another layer to that. Pew Research shows us in 2014, regardless of drilling down into the theology, in America, 70.6% of people self-identify as being Christian. Now, this includes Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and it also includes, if I'm not mistaken, Jehovah's Witness and Mormons, evangelicals, mainline Protestant denominations. So it's a not really theological in, uh, as we would appreciate, but nonetheless, there's 70% of people appealing to the Bible in some way or another saying, yeah, I, this is my book, at least what they say on paper. There's been the rise in the nuns that we've been heard out the last 20 years. 22.8% identify as non-religious and then 5.9% as all other faiths. Uh, Islam, Jews, and and more. Buddhists and beyond. So the cultural hegemony of America is white, Christian, and male. Now, um when you get into the, to, to gender, uh, presuming binary gender of male and female... We know that females are slightly more uh, because we guys die sooner and do stupid stuff. <laughs> but when you're looking at these this category... So again, why are we talking about this? Why are we drilling down into this? The zeitgeist of the age, the spirit of the age that's especially increasing and getting more mainstream... And you see the arguments in the news is this fundamental idea, belief system, variously connected, variously expressed through neo-Marxism, critical race, or critical theory and its subcategories, intersectionality, this is why you have diversity, equity, and inclusion, training in your business. It all is to the social effect of, in one way or another, identifying and overthrowing the cultural hegemony. So from a mathematical perspective, you you can't do that simply based on ethnicity, based on census, but it's about levers of power and control. Think Washington, D.C., New York, L.A., and the Bay Area. And so what it means then is that if you are white, if you are male, and if you are a Christian, and what I want to emphasize here is Christian, because that's that's our allegiance is to Jesus is this notion of a christian worldview or a christian ethic is seemed is is interpreted as oppressive it's hate speech and more on this worldview it was from marx when he invented marxism and down through all its various iterations up to this point it comes down to that what jesus teaches about being Male, female, family, and more is considered hate speech and oppressive and if you want to read i don't it's in my office an exceptional book on this um it is called yeah, the new one Andy Bo, do you remember it Yeah. Strange New World, yeah, so there's two books by this one guy, Carl Truman. So both talking about Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, excellent, outstanding book, it's the best, get it and read it, it's super hard to read, take you forever, it's worth it. He came out with a popular level that also builds on his work called Strange New World, Pastor Andy, Strange New World, and I'd recommend that that you get it. There he dives into how is it, well, I'm actually going to quote him in a minute, so I'm going to stop saying that. But let's pick on NAU for a moment, our beloved NAU, shall we? NAU, and I, I want to show you in the footnote here that in your notes, or if you get the notes from me, you can read this article for yourself. Northern Arizona University has made, recently made headlines, May twenty fourth, 2022. Do you see that date? It's very recently. For plans, though my understandings are not set in stone, so this could change. But nonetheless, for plans to require NAU students to take four diversity courses in order to graduate starting in 2024. This is not a Christian article. I'm about to quote from this guy. And I would encourage you, please read this for yourself. Actually, I think I included it in the newsletter last week, didn't I? So here's here's just the opening salvo of words from the linked article. At Northern Arizona University... A course titled, Intersectional Movements of Race, Class, Gender, and Sexuality. Pause. I just talked about those words. They're, They're in your notes. A course titled, Intersectional Movements of Race, Class, Gender, and Sexuality promised to analyze, quote, how intersectionality and the matrix of inequality have shaped the production of knowledge. It's all very technical language. Production of knowledge refers to, philosophically, how we know what we know in structures of thought. And the idea here is that our belief systems shape our knowledge, and so we need to fundamentally change our belief systems to shape the production of thought. Um, When you read this book a lot, it produces a type of thought, and then you begin to live your your life out of it. This is going to be examining... uh, be surprised if they didn't talk about a quote Judeo Christian ethic. Um, have shaped the production of knowledge and to, provode, to provide, quote, a critical lens. Do you see the language? A critical lens through which intersectional epistemologies, um, how do we know what we know? And then related, how do we know it's true and more? It goes on down the road. A critical lens through which intersectional epistemologies can be foregrounded. So, uh, well, okay. Another introduction to queer, another introduction to queer studies covers, quote, queer theory and activism. The, quote, social and historical construction of gender and sexuality. Social and historical construction of gender and sexuality. Where do gender and sexuality come from? They are socially and historically constructed. Let's deconstruct that on that view and then construct something new, namely that gender is not binary and free it from the shackles of the Christian ethic. And the role of allies and social change. Allies and social change is the activist language That you are proactive in verbally, financially, socially, doing what you can to dismantle systems of power. Roles of allies in social change. Trans existence and resilience meantime promises to, quote, examine trans epistemologies as well as critiques of Eurocentric models of thinking. Well, where did ancient Europe and modern Europe come from? It came from biblical Christianity. The critiques of the Eurocentric models of thinking about genders that explain people's existence within Western frameworks and ontologies. Fancy word for uh, what am I, who am I, it's about being. Each of these courses counts towards one of NAU's two, quote, diversity requirements, close quote which students must satisfy to complete their degrees now NAU plans to take the requirements even further mandating that students take 4 of such courses a policy that the university's own diversity curriculum committee described as quote unprecedented close quote this matters because it's two blocks away and our students are going through and in order to graduate, you can't circumvent taking these classes. You, you choose them or a new version of them or something along those lines. You're required for, for graduation. And the article is much longer and keeps going. I suggest that you read it. The zeitgeist of the age is not just far away in D.C., New York, L.A. or, uh, or the Bay Area. It's, a, it's across the street. And every Sunday and even now, we have students who walk over, ride over and come in and sit and are learning to think about Jesus and the good news of his gospel and how he defines humanity um, in contrast to what's being taught next door and various varieties and more. So in summary, so much more can be said, such as the recent film, What is a Woman?, Uh, gender transition for children. It's making the headlines all over the place and much more. But it only takes a few moments of scrolling multiple news outlets or social media to see how confused, contradictory, divergent, and divided our culture is. Our culture cannot agree what gender is. Our culture can't agree what sexuality is. Our culture can't agree what sexuality is for, what the family is, what the roles and responsibilities of parents and children are, what a dad is and a mom is and a husband and a wife. Our culture can't agree what race or really ethnicity is and what we are and how to relate and live as a society. So we are in a complete societal overthrow. If you had the sexual revolution of the 70s that began the rise of the feminist movement mainstream and also throwing off the shackles shackles of a Christian sexual ethic, we now are seeing the fruit of that movement and ideology, both academically and popularly, the popular level uh, of seeing we don't know what a person is anymore. In short, our society has no working understanding of what it means to be human and instead is in process of tearing itself apart based on competing assumptions of what it is to be and live as a human or, remember last week, or as a non-human. Remember the dragons, lions, and foxes? Here's a Carl Truman quote from... uh, This is a composite quote, actually. So, Carl Truman has wondered, in effect... How is it that the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, has moved from unintelligible and absurd a generation ago, I'd say decades ago, to one of simply unthinking acceptance and celebration today? In the blink of a generational eye, how how did did we get there? He asks. Truman has further elaborated on the same statement. So he's, he says, in effect... I heard this in an interview of his. So a generation ago, if you had walked into the doctor's office and said, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would have said, in effect, you have a mental problem. Let's work to change the way you think. So something is wrong with the immaterial part of you. We need to bring it in line with the material part of you. Thereby conforming one's mind to one's biology. But today... Not all doctors, but increasingly, would say, you have a physical problem, so let's change your body to conform to your feelings and your mind. And of course, we cannot change our biology. Technology today has enabled us to do cosmetic enhancements of all manner, but it doesn't change our biology. We can seek to change hormonal structures and expression, but it still doesn't change hormones at the biological level. So we can exchange exchange our external outlook and hormonal expression through modern technology, but biology stays the same. So this, this was a section thinking through, asking the beginning question, who or what has the authority to define and decide what it is to be human? And so we've spent time thinking through different ways at the academic level and social media popular level that people are seeking to do this and... I am going to argue the Bible has the sole authority to define and describe what it means to be human, to which we will turn in a moment, questions, comments, especially Bo, Scott, Pastor Elders, but anybody else too.
1: Pastor Dave this is a brief question the, the, the big paragraph the long paragraph that you went through a little while ago who authored that
0: you know I don't remember his name but there's the link and you'll be able to find it as well as the institution that from which that produced it okay yeah sorry questions observations hopeless, hopeful statements Yes, Mandy.
2: I just wanted to say quick, um, you were talking about them trying to dismantle Christianity and whatever, and I was just going to say we have to remember it doesn't matter how we say it because I think a lot of us are like, oh, if we just say what the Bible says nicely enough, but it it doesn't matter if we can say it as nice as possible and it's still considered violence in their framework, their mental framework.
0: Yeah, I, um, I, I wonder when uh, the four elders were going to be doing ministry in prison. And I say that sarcastically and honestly. Um, I, I, I really do. Uh, because when you don't have the freedom of speech, right? We see all the things about um, uh, Jordan Peterson, all these, you know, um, All these academics who have been run out of their positions, even in Portland, Oregon, and other places, uh, for not agreeing with the narrative, the worldview story that's being spoken, are just shattered out and run down through by mobs. And um, when you don't have the freedom to speak, then um, that's where you'll get put in jail. However... The gospel of God is the power of salvation. And so um, the danger for us, as there are societal, philosophical, religious battle lines being drawn in a way they've never been drawn before, we have to remember that like Paul, who persecuted and killed the church, became the greatest gospelizer and evangelist of the church. And so um, we must be stern and and forthright and know what we believe and why. Uh, but also, also, we, we looked at at the beginning of last week that um, we destroy strongholds and lofty arguments with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, w- what's happening now is with the mob rule, it's easy to lose courage, and it's easy to uh, it's easy to be afraid. And we have a strong company of hebrew eleven Hebrews chapter eleven witnesses who have been sawn in two and went about destitute in caves um, and stopped the mouths of lions and more because they stood firm on the word of God. So my aim is not to paint a bleak picture, but to paint a sober picture that um, the easy believism and tranquil Christianity that that has been enjoyed uh, does not exist anymore. And I posted a number of, probably months ago, an article. And and then maybe you guys can help me. I can send it again in the newsletter. Um, A guy named Aaron Wren talked about the three worlds of evangelicalism. I think that's what the article was called. You had a positive world, a neutral world, and a negative world. And by which that he meant, if you said you were a Christian... Up until the mid-90s, it was positive and good, and you had social capital. Now, I know we can quibble on the dates, but he has some pretty good markers to say that it was a positive world. There was, it, was, it, was, it wasn't frowned upon, it wasn't surprised, and it was actually, most people would say they were a Christian, even if they weren't because of the social capital. But then from the mid-90s to Obergefell, when same-sex was legalized, that was a neutral world in both academic circles to a certain degree and political circles, where to be a Christian still gains you political capital, but you, it wasn't um, favored, but it wasn't disfavored, if that makes sense. And then he argues that since 2014, we have moved into an increasingly deeper into a negative world where it is negative and viewed as bad to say, I am a Christian, I am a Bible-believing, born-again Christian who loves Jesus Christ and believes that Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 is true, to say that you are stigmatized and marginalized at work, in politics, and more. We live in a negative world. And what was so good about his article is that he was saying a lot of Christians still think that we live in the positive world. And the world has changed. And we need to change with it and adjust how we are living, moving, and having our being in the world. It's very important for us to recognize that. Um, so, please help me think about that. Yeah, Mike. Oh, he needs a mic, Bo. Would you please get that to him? Oh, I, that was funny.
1: <laughs> um, oops, sorry. Uh, just within the past couple weeks, two weeks... I was at the Burger King over on the east side, and I had a customer from Sam's Club, where I work, come and say, are you still a Christian? And I go, well, I started as a Christian, so yes, I am a Christian, because God saves me. And he started writing me, because I'm a Christian, I must be a racist, and just coming at me and attacking me. And I tried to use it as a discussion, but I should have just backed off. And it got to where we were both asked to leave. I wasn't like yelling or anything. It's just people around us got uncomfortable. Hmm. But the basic thing that there I was, I was, you know, I had my Bible and I was working on a study. And it, so you're right. It's not, it, it carries a, starting to carry a negative stigma. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: Preston. Who's got the mic? I do Less.
3: Yeah score, pastor, score. Uh, just a quick question. when you were getting your doctorate, yeah. did you have to deal with this? No.
0: Mm-mm. Praise the Lord.
1: So what would be your advice given you know the NAU obviously they've, ha- they've had the two class requirement going to four. in a situation like this, what would be your advice as a pastor? to the general congregation like do we sit back and watch it happen
0: do we do something about it do you just pray about it that's a great question brother um, so my answer to this question is on an on an, like you said advice to the individual christian this is not me representing the elders and saying well, what we're going to do as a church um, i think first and foremost when we, uh, when we see college students attending, make a priority to reach out to, the, to those students and as quickly as you can, try to build a discipling relationship with them and, and mentor them. Um, on, the, on the one hand, um, on the other hand, a board of trustees who oversees the academics and the president and more is elected by our governor. So there's political recourse we have to hold the governor's feet to the fire, to ask him why he's not holding their feet to the fire, and having this type of academics go through the system. And that is, that's a right that we have as citizens, and I think it could be a really good display of Christian love to perhaps engage in that in some capacity if someone felt so inclined. Yes, Chris. So the Arizona Board of Regents has oversight over all
3: three universities, and... I know for a fact that this has reached the Arizona Board of Regents. And the Arizona Board of Regents is right now reviewing this curriculum. So they want to see what's in each one of these courses. This is a positive, a real positive step. So the Arizona Board of Regents would be our voice into this. So if you know anybody on the Arizona Board of Regents, uh, contacting the Arizona Board of Regents I think you can do that through their website um, would all be positive steps um, on that we can at least encourage them to take it seriously and that is the reason it made it to the Board of Regents was because people stepped up and said something about it mm-hmm. these articles for example
2: mm-hmm.
3: so Chris would you tell everybody who doesn't know you where you are employed uh, I'm, I'm employed by the state no,
0: I'm, I'm a professor at uh, NAU, so. So one thing, so that, so something else would be, so in-house, if we have a student come, let's do the best that we can as a church family to welcome them into our family and help them through a very difficult time. Um, at our high middle school, high school level, we have to recognize, I invite all of you to go to FUSD.org and go through, and I or I can just send you the link that is the... Um, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Task Force that was uh, put together in 2020 and the recommendations they've made to the school district that um, the bibliography they provide in there is uh, it's, it's uniquely on race in particular, but then also LGBTQ plus and it the, at least the race the books on race is just a portfolio of all of the critical race theory uh, pro woke books. Now I don't know. Um, Hannah, if you've heard, if there's any training, anything has happened since then, but they had the task force they put together and made a recommendation. So that exists. We have to be aware of that, too, at our public schools in town. So students, so our high school students or middle school students, we need to train them. We need to welcome college students who come here. Um, I think that a number of you, a number of us, a number of you go on campus to evangelize, being aware of the worldview that is pre-existing as well as being taught. And to Chris's point, um, Lord willing, there will be political maneuvers to change the course curriculum. But we have to recognize it's those professors are building the curriculum in the first place. So even though they're, they're not allowed to teach it, or however that works, there's still going to be academic freedom to teach things along those lines and more. So it's, it's inescapable, in my opinion, opinion. Yeah.
3: I don't know how long you want to continue with questions.
0: M- maybe last one. Maybe if you want to make a well, statement. Well, we
3: had two over there, but if you want to move on, maybe we can, you guys can hold, or we had two more
0: questions over there. Yeah, I want to talk about the Bible. Can we talk about, can, we, can you guys go on hold and We'll talk about that at the end. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So we need to know what we believe and why. And so... Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We go until 9. You know, the funny thing is when I printed out the notes tonight, I was worried that there wasn't enough content to fill all of our time. Okay, we're on page 11. I want to set God's word before us before I just talk because I want to hear Bible. Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, please look at verse 20, we'll pick up in 26, and I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter to verse 31. This is the creation account, right? Verses 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to every thing that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So the question before us is, what does it mean to be human according to Scripture? And that is what the rest of our time together is going to be. Uh, which, by the way, t- our last time together in the fall is going to be the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Not the week of Thanksgiving, the week prior to Thanksgiving. 60? If that's right, that's right. <laughs> Just, yeah. Okay, so what does it mean to be human? Well, by way of reminder, scientific materialism says regarding human, to be human is we are evolved and evolving animals. We are the product of time, chance, and electrical impulses. There is no true meaning or significance to humanity other than being apex predators. And what is socially created, social Darwinism equals survival of the fittest of the species at the individual, tribal, national, and racial levels. Uh, Because the understanding of race comes from the evolution. So that's scientific materialism. So you are an animal on this view. Nothing more, nothing less. From the neo-pagan, neo-gnosticism view, we are spirit beings housed in temporary bodies ultimately in some way or another connected to the immaterial forces of the universe maybe it's a Gaia hypothesis that the earth itself is a living organism and we're connected to the earth um, or what was that what was that uh, movie with the blue people in the ears yeah yeah that's Gaia hypothesis um, or the force actually from Star Wars and more So you have these two different views. One emphasizes that to be human is mainly physical and material, and one emphasizes that to be human is really spiritual and immaterial. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that we are to be created in the image of God. So um, look here in your notes, page 11. I'm just going to read verse 26 because we are going to get through the first sentence tonight. Then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's where we're going tonight. So down at the bottom of page 11, before and above anything else, to be human, according to the Bible, is to be made in the image and likeness of God. Whatever that means, and Lord willing, we're going to find out tonight, that's where we're going. So there's your definition up front, before it's anything else. What's a human? A human is a person made in the image and likeness of God. So let's pick this apart. What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to go phrase by phrase and in some cases word by word through this verse we're going to drill down very deep. We're going to get my magnifying glasses out walk up to the bark of the tree and we're going to peer into the all the details of the bark and then we're going to zoom out and try to fit this back together. Because this is if you're been around church very long and read your Bible very much, this is very common language that we grow used to, but what does it actually mean? So let's, let's pick this apart. So verse 26, God calls his image bearers man. You see that? Let, then God said, let us make man. So the word man there in Hebrew is adam, or we say Adam. And that's going to become the proper name of this first man in Genesis chapter 2. His name is Adam. So here, God says, Let us make Adam in our image and after our likeness. But let's talk about the, let's get into words now. So let's get into definitions, picking this apart. Adam. In biblical Hebrew, there are four words, four terms translated into english as man or or male so first one here is adam it appear adam it appears 558 times and it can be used in one of two ways it's either as i just said the proper name of the first created person adam or as it's being used here it's a collective noun meaning mankind or humanity you know, it's too bad that we've lost the word mankind. Because if you think about Genesis chapter 1, each day God creates all the creatures after its kind. And here he's made Adam, and we're just translating or the, they translated Adam as man, so mankind is means that we are Adam kind. And but that's offensive to say. So here, Adam is the proper name God assigns to the collective of humanity. All of us, which is all humans, who have descended from the first human named Adam, Adam. So 558 times. I'm going to go through these four terms and I'll ask if you have any questions. The next one, and this is important because this is the word that's going to be used in verse 27 when he says male and female. Okay. The next word that's used in Hebrew for man is zakar, zakar, and it happens, it occurs only 82 times in the OT, and what's interesting about this word is it's, it refers to and emphasizes the genderedness of the human person, so male. So zakar is actually a generic term that refers to any male creature, whether a human or or a bull, goat, or whatever creature. It's a word that's used a lot in Leviticus regarding what kind of animals you can sacrifice. So, zakar is referring to gender specifically, and it's in contrast to a gendered female who is a nakeba, nakeba. Next, this is the top of page 12, is ish, ish is how you pronounce it. And this is the word that we, uh, we will find at the end of Genesis 2 when Adam marries Eve. Eve doesn't get named Eve until after the fall, by the way. Ish ish is just the word for man. Uh, you can see that it's used 2,188 times. It's just the generic word for a guy. Okay? Man or husband, depending upon context, and the feminine form of Ish is Isha, and that means woman or wife so we'll meet that in Genesis 2. And then the other one, this is also interesting, is geber. And it's used 66 times. But this word, so where zakar, that second word, is, is emphasizes gender, geber uh, is, is it's related to the word in Hebrew for strength, physical strength, slash metaphorically, courage. So a man of courage, a man of valor, or something like that, David's mighty men. That idea, they're called geber, and it's, it's, it's saying that here's a guy, but we are singling out this guy for his courage and or strength, often in battle, or fearing the Lord. And it's used also as an idiom for courage and bravery, or there's a few places where it's used ironically. The God calls the guy... Uh, geber, when he actually has no geber, meaning he's not courageous. So it's used sarcastically. I I don't know. I didn't look it up. I'm thinking of it on the spot. When God comes to, um, oh, I'm just blinking on all the Bible. Who's the guy in the book of Judges who's afraid? Yeah, so when when God comes to him and says, oh, mighty man of valor, or something along those lines, I don't know if it's this word. Um, Maybe it is. Someone can look it up. So those are the four terms. And so it's important to know that when you're, when you're reading your Bible, just in English, we've got man or male. But in, in the Hebrew, uh, they have the four terms that are emphasizing different things. And that's going to become important as we, as we move down. Because, we're not looking at it this week, but if you just look in your Bible at, at verse 27, Genesis 127, so God created Adam in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Zakar and Nekeba, he created them. So the emphasis in Genesis 1.27 is on the genderedness, specifically the maleness and femaleness of Adam and Eve and all the children of all of mankind to come from them. But we'll see that a different time. Any questions on Hebrew definitions of the four different ways the term man is used? So, can you see some of the significance there, especially as I just pointed out, 127, that how Hebrew has a word that actually focuses on gender? Uh, we do too, masculinity and femininity. And so that's kind of what's going on here. Although masculinity and femininity tends, in our language, to focus on um, maleness being expressed. Um, interpersonally in a certain way, so maybe it's a little bit more like geber, man of courage and strength, something along those lines. Questions, comments? All right. Let's continue to pick this apart. In verse 26, God creates Adam, Adam, and he says, in our image and after our likeness. We're going to talk about image and likeness, for the rest of our time this evening. I want to let you know up front that there are competing views, and I am confident that the view I'm going to present tonight is 100% right. and You should believe all of it. Uh, And everything I'm going to say is derived from these two books right here. Um, This is co-authored, and one of the guys is Peter Gentry, and this is only by Peter Gentry. It's called Kingdom Through Covenant, and he is the most abled scholar I'm aware of who is able to go deep into the Hebrew weeds as well as all of the ancient Near Eastern religions that existed at the time when Genesis was written by Moses and how the people at the time would have understood what, what Moses was writing. So I'm leaning on, on these things. So if anything sounds smart, it's from these books. So one thing that you may hear or perhaps have been taught is that these words are synonyms. Image and likeness means the same thing. It's kind of a poetic statement, and so not much more to it. It's important to recognize that image and likeness, the meaning of these terms overlap, but they are not identical and they are not synonymous. The Holy Spirit is being very deliberate as he inspires Moses to write this account Of what God really said within the secret councils of the Trinity when they when they, He, our God, our Triune God, made Adam. So the Triune God is communicating two iterated realities of what it means for you and I to to be Adam, to be Adam, to be human. So we need to zoom in and get very detailed here. So let's let's pick this apart, this phrase first, in our image. Let us make man in our image. What does that mean? Because it's important to know what image means. The word image is selim. It's a T-S sound. You say selim. And it's used five times in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 5. What we want to do is we want to look... this. So, uh, pause for a second. To do Bible study and understand what words mean... You you need to use resources to look at how the same word is used everywhere else in Scripture to come back and then help you understand that you're not just using your Oxford dictionary and see how we translate into English, and almost always our English translation is excellent. But we need to look to see how the term is used. What does it mean that God is that you and I are made in God's image? So if we're not looking at Genesis 1 and 5, but look outside, we see that there are 20 references to Using this word, and they're all to a physical idol, or a statue, or an image that is carved and made or built. Nine uses of it refer to physical objects. There's a bunch of text references you can look up. Either an object, or a statue, or an idol. And then if you go to the book of Daniel, and in the Aramaic portions of Daniel, portions of our Hebrew Bibles are in Aramaic, when Nebuchadnezzar is speaking, in the Aramaic portions of the book of Daniel, 11 instances refer to the physical statue that Nebuchadnezzar made of himself. So what did he do? He, he had a dream, wanted to build a statue, and made a statue, bow down all the world and worship the statue of me. Uh, one use of the expression zelem is actually on Nebuchadnezzar's face. In Daniel 3.10, it says the image of, of his face. So in this case, it's not a carved statue, but it's his expression. Next, uh, one is used of a physical etching on a wall inside the temple, Ezekiel 23, like, a, like a, a relief. There was death to it. Abstractly, there's five references to the physical statue and Nebuchadnezzar's dreams that he was having. So it's, It's it's abstract, but in his dream, he's seeing a physical statue. Uh, Abstractly, again, there's two references to the weakness of man as shadows. The idea is along the lines of, these are both from Psalms, along the lines of something like, even though man is physical and strong, he is nothing and weak as a shadow when compared to the greatness of God. So it's used abstractly in that sense. And then if we were to look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew into Greek, the word is icon or idol, which recognizes icon or idol. So it just means physical statue. So, so how do we see this word zelem used everywhere else in the Bible? It simply refers to a physical statue that represents and stands in place of something else. And in scripture, it's either a well a God or a guy who thinks he's a God. So now just pause for a second. Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our image. So we're going to come back to that. But we are, part of to be human, being human, is being physical being embodied, being in the physical representation of God himself who is spirit. We'll get more into that when we talk about gender and bodies coming up soon. But right now we're just thinking about what do these words mean? Let's pick them apart, turn it around, and we'll put it back together. So that is image. Any questions so far on zelem and image? Yes, sir.
1: The idea of the plural nature of us, let us create in our image, does that refer to the Trinity?
0: Yes. I believe so. In light of the entire canon of Scripture, it absolutely refers to the Trinity. Not everybody agrees with that, but they're not right. (laughs) There's, There's different positions. Well, uh, God is speaking to the divine council that you read of in Job chapter 1, and it's really just the angels who are present. The problem is that angels don't participate in the creation of humans, um, nor do angels bear the image of God before humans do. So if God's speaking to angels, it, it's nonsense that he'd be speaking to them. And then you get other expressions of that, but um, I think in light of the whole canon and, pro- and progressive revelation, Unfolding revelation, since I can't say progressive anymore. The unfolding revelation of scripture, it's trying in my estimation. Good question. Very good question. Any other questions on image? Pastor Bill. So
3: um, uh, this is a simple question. <laughs> so oftentimes when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, I just want explain to everybody who's here. So we talk about the image being made in the image of God. And then people say, well, we're all made in the image of God. Therefore, we are all children of God. Would you maybe just kind of briefly describe the difference between the two so we have a clear understanding?
0: Thank you for that softball. Um, The generic 100-year-old liberal idea of the fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man is false. Um, I have to show my cards a little bit here, but you have the notes in front of you anyways a key feature that I'm going to argue in a few moments of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God is sonship. That Adam and Eve are designated as God's daughter and son as vice regents to rule over creation. So then the question is, what is lost in the fall? Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin and, and fall. What is lost is the designation of sonship. That is why when we go to the gospel... And what God does for us in Christ when Jesus lives, dies for our sins on the cross, rises from the grave and now teaches us to pray our Father who are in heaven and how the pinnacle of the gospel is not just our justification but our adoption as children. The central feature of the gospel is that we are adopted back into God's family. So what's lost in the fall? Designation of sonship. And that's why all all of us are confined and condemned to go to hell unless we repent and believe in Jesus Christ. There are residual realities that I'm going to argue a little bit later that we, we, the, the image is not fully lost but it is perverted and it is um, misused in our sin but there is still dignity within a human being and therefore, every human being is, is uh, deserving of respect and value, having been made in the image of God. And then that image is broken because of their sin, and they're in rebellion of him. Questions or comments on that? Yeah, Craig Hillman.
1: The phrase, um, spark of the divine, uh, is that in every person?
0: No, that's nonsense. That's what I thought. Yeah, meaning it makes no sense.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Thank you you for asking that. There is no spark of divine. There's a spark of hatred that is a burning flame in all people because the darkness hates the light and we're presented as dead. That's why in Genesis chapter 3, Jesus says no one can even see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So you're born again, then you can see the things of God. Good question.
1: So the unsaved aren't considered orphans, but because they have a father.
0: That's right. You're absolutely right. Okay. They are of their father, the devil, as Jesus rebukes the religious leaders.
1: So when the Bible says the father of the fatherless, what does that refer to then?
0: Well, when he says that, he's speaking covenantally. Okay. So he's, he's speaking specifically of those within the Mosaic covenant, though we know that pure and undefiled religion is this, to work, look after widows and orphans in their distress, Um, so, uh, God has a heart for all children and I don't want to go down the road of what happens to children when they die. I believe that they're saved actually. Um, but, um, yeah, so that does not mean that there's a universal fatherhood of God over all humanity.
1: So all humanity is either in covenant or out of covenant.
0: Correct. Correct. Which would also be then, God can't be your father unless you're in covenant with him through Jesus in his new covenant.
1: Sorry, I'll, I'll stop.
0: Yeah, good, good questions. Excellent leading questions. Thank you for helping me. Okay, let's, anything else? Let's, let's move on to, to the next one. These are good questions, you guys. So we're, we're getting technical, and we're going to try to add some detail to this. Okay, so after our image, so image is referring to a physical statue that represents and stands in place of something else. Very important definition, that's the top of 13. Okay, so what does after our likeness mean? That word likeness is demut, or demuth. And the bulk of occurrences is, is in Ezekiel when he's having these visions, and then he's describing what he sees in these visions. In summary, the term is never used in the Old Testament to refer to a physical statue, never. Uh, instead, it focuses on the relationship of the copy to the original. So I think if I remember correctly, I think Ahaz, the, the king, sends a priest to a pagan nation, sees an altar they have, uh, uh, or and then the... the or somehow Ahaz sees it. He really likes it. So he draws a picture of it and wants them to make a copy of it so they can build it. It's the same word, demut, demuth. It's, it's, a, it's likeness. So the short of this word likeness is where image is concrete, physical statue. Likeness is an abstract term of comparison. This is like that. X is like Y. This means that there's a similarity of comparison likeness but it doesn't mean sameness okay so there's comparison so image is concrete three-dimensional or I suppose relief because there's also the wall etching it's usually of a three-dimensional statue in the Old Testament and then demuth or likeness means that there's a comparison taking place but I want to press a bit further into this because we want to marshal other passages of scripture to help us understand what's going on here And this gets to the conversation we just had. Why don't you turn over, please, to Genesis 5. It's in your notes, too, but I just want to hear your Bible's pages turn. Genesis 5, 1 through 3. This is the book, this is verse 1, of the generations of Adam. When God created man... He made him in the likeness of God. Pause. Uh, what, what is Moses quoting of himself right there? What we just read in Genesis one twenty six and 27 and following, right? So Moses is quoting himself, an uh, in intertextual quotation of the Bible. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, verse 1. Verse 2, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them, Adam, man, when they were created, when Adam had lived one hundred and thirty years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and named him Seth. What do you notice? What? What's that? Yes, great theological observation. Simply with the grammar and verbs, words that are used, nouns that are used there in the in the page in in verse three, what did Adam do? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can you see that connection? Black and white right in front of you. God made man in His likeness, or God, God created man in the like. He made him in His in the likeness of God. Sorry. Verse 3, what did Adam do? He fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. Moses, inspired by the Spirit, is saying that something happening here with Adam and Eve having Seth, Adam is doing in some way what God did in Genesis 1. Any questions on that? It's how the grammar and language is what it means. So, um, note the direct literary connections. There is a biblical correspondence between God creating Adam and Adam begetting, old word, or fathering Seth. Scripture uses the same language to indicate that what God did for Adam, in some similar way, Adam in turn did it for Seth. God is indicating that we're to think of both accounts in similar ways. Now, it's not the same because in Genesis 2, we know that God forms Adam from the dust of the earth, whereas here in Genesis 5, we have the end of Genesis taking place where the man and wife cleave together and produce a son. So there's similarity but difference. For Seth... To be in Adam's likeness. For Seth, the son, is in the likeness of Adam. And after Adam's image means that Seth was a physical representation, look-alike, so to speak, of Adam in some way. Seth was not a clone of Adam. But Seth was after Adam's kind. Right? He wasn't a horse or tortoise he was an adam he was a human so he had physical three-dimensional representation image but there's also likeness and what's interesting in genesis 5 in verse 2 god just says that he made him in the likeness of god he doesn't say image again now on the one hand it's shorthand it's presumed because these words function together they're a unit Image and likeness, image and likeness, you can't take them apart. But here he just says likeness, why? The accent note here in Genesis 5 is on the relationship between the terms likeness and son. And and let me make that point a little bit stronger. So the emphasis in Genesis 5 is Adam is doing what God did to make Adam, but different, Adam knows his wife Eve, they have Seth, and now Seth is bearing the image and likeness of Adam, both physically, right? Salem, same word, physical image and likeness, whatever that means. Okay, so you've skipped down to page 13. Cross-reference. This is Luke 3:23 and then verse 38. This is Luke's genealogy. This is Luke's Matthew 1. This is Luke's genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Verse 38, Those, he have the long list? Last verse, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. What do you see the Bible saying? So, Luke, uh, full of the same and only spirit that Moses was full of when he wrote Genesis... Here's designating and explaining for us what's going on in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, 4, and 5. Is that Adam is the son of God. Designated as the son of God. Luke's genealogy of Jesus explicitly designates Adam as the son of God. Um, And interestingly, Luke 1, top of page 14... Luke 1 verses 31 to 35 explicitly declares that Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, verse 35. Therefore, the child born to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Um, the emphasis here, if you've been around church, you're used to it. Jesus is the Son of God and also the Son of David as to his deity, son of God, as to his humanity, son of David, descended. And so the sonship of Christ is related to the sonship of Adam. Pop quiz. Could be guess what I'm thinking. Uh, in Romans 5, and in 1 Corinthians 15, an argument is made about Jesus and who... He is the second Adam, Pastor Andy. Thank you very much. The sonship tie between these two men, right? the, the way the gospel is framed, the good news is our problem is that we are all in old Adam. And Adam plunged the human race into sin, mischief, and mayhem. He ruined us all. And it's not just his fault, it's your fault too, because you sinned too. So we are all guilty. What we need is nothing less than a transfer of who our head is. We need to go from the first created man to the new and last created man, namely Jesus Christ. There has to be a transfer of paternity. Well, that actually confuses the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, Affiliation. Sons in the Son. We are sons in Jesus, and by being in Jesus, God is now our Father. And so there needs to be a transfer taking place. It's a huge, major argument in Paul's writings in Romans and in Corinthians about how the gospel works. Uh, w- one more, another cross-reference. What we're doing is we're, we're, we're trying to figure out what in the world is going on in Genesis 5 when Seth is made in the likeness of Adam and the rest of the Bible to help us understand Genesis 1, what does it mean that we're made in the image and likeness of God? What does it mean to be in the, God's likeness? The Bible unfolds across six divine covenants. In these six divine covenants in the Bible, each of them, God makes a covenant with a male head, the guy who's the head of the covenant on behalf of the covenant people. And it. in each of these six divine covenants, the male head is designated a son. What do I mean? I'm going to work in reverse. The new covenant Jesus is the son of God. The Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, God says to David about David's son who will be a king, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Jesus is the son of David. But the Davidic covenant is made with David about his son the Mosaic or Israelite covenant in Exodus 4.22, God tells Moses, then he shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel, the whole nation, is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So then in Exodus 19 and 20, when the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant is made, it's made with the nation. And God says, the nation of Israel is my son. Now, technically, working backwards Abraham Genesis 12:15 some other texts 17 sun terminology is not used of Abraham but creation or new creation imagery is used of Abraham and Paul does that in Romans 4:17 where he's essentially saying that Abraham didn't exist until God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of promise So he's new creation and Adam was creation. So there's a connection there loosely. And of course, Isaac, the son, plays a huge role in the Abrahamic covenant. So, working down then, the argument is this. Based on the features of the whole Bible and what we read in in, um, Genesis chapter 1, image and likeness, the likeness piece emphasizes the sonship of Adam. To God. Now, a son is like his father, right? He's his spitting image, is a saying that used to be said. And um, there is an aspect within this about, well, character, the the part of not just looking like dad, but being like dad. But the key emphasis here is dad, the the sonship. So to summarize this word, demuth, after our likeness, it's a term of comparison. X is like Y, and it indicates that God made Adam, humanity, to relate vertically to him in a familial way, namely as sons. So when you hear the word likeness, you need to think of sonship, not just um, father-son relationship, but also being like the father. So, the character. Think fruit of the Holy Spirit and more. And this idea of likeness and sonship is both confirmed by Genesis 5, Luke 3, and the structure of the divine covenants, what we just rapidly went through. So, so pausing there. Image and likeness. Arguing that likeness is about sonship and also being like God. Questions or comments about that? Mandy. Um, So to
2: summarize, um, would you say we lost, in a sense, our likeness to God in the fall because we lost like our sanctification in a way? And that is what like Christ helps redeem in us through the fall and through our sanctification is us becoming once again like God. Because you were saying likeness is character. But we haven't lost our image of God necessarily. So we still reflect God physically, but we've lost our likeness to him. And that's what Christ is rebuilding through sanctification.
0: um, Great, great question. So let let me see if I can say that. So image and likeness function together and mean more than what the individual words say. There is being the image of God is a horizontal idea that I am a physical representation of God and I'm to physically represent him in a physical world to all creation. And likeness is the vertical aspect of me relating to God. So I don't want to split the words up too much. but they, So physical, horizontal, likeness is vertical. And that's sonship and character. So when Adam and Eve sinned, and when we all sinned, we lost sonship. We lost God's character. And we've perverted the imaging of him to the world. And what we're going to get into next time is tied to what we are is what we do. And the doing part of being us is being fruitful and multiplying and filling and subduing the earth and having dominion over all creation. So, that's part of being kings and queens of the earth, but we are actually rebels, rebel kings and queens, and we misuse what God made us to be for sinful purposes. So, Jesus in him is, has fully, finally, perfectly restored sonship to God through our justification by faith alone. Sanctification is helping us image God more horizontally as the Spirit puts the Word into our bones and we actually live out the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and more. Is, is um, positionally in Christ as sons, practically sanctification being more like Christ, imago Christi, image of Christ, is what's happening by the Spirit. I don't know if that answers your question.
2: So would you say would you say the image of God has kind of is connected to our value as human beings and uh, like all life is valuable because we're made in the image of God and then likeness I'm just trying to distinguish the two like in simple like a simple whatever yeah. you could do yeah. you know what I mean
0: Yeah I, I don't have a simple way to say it yet and I I, um, I I totally resonate with that because what we typically hear is the image of God was lost but not lost, but marred in the fall. And I think on this view, it's almost entirely lost, other than just the external shell of us still living out the um, dominion mandate of being fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue the earth, and um, yeah, exercise dominion. So let's come back to that. I just want to finish this, this summary here. To tie it all together. And then then I'll take questions and you guys can go. It's 803. So tying the terms together. Bottom of page 14. um, Top of 15. So again, in our image, humans physically... So this is all pre-fall. This is Genesis 1 and 2, not Genesis 3. Humans physically represent the triune God in the world in some way, emphasizing the horizontal relationship of humans to the world and one another. That is what is being restored in Christ. B, after our likeness, unlike any other creature, including angels, there is a unique correspondence between God and humans. Humans are like God in some way, namely, positioned as sons. This is not to be misunderstood that humans are divine in some way, and only that God gloriously, um, only that God gloriously relates to Adam as his children prior to the fall of now in Christ. So, the gospel restores sonship. So, see, image and likeness function together to describe what it is to be human. Humans are, one, defined by God, as opposed to autonomy. And break that word apart. Autonomy, it means self-law. That is the, that's the spirit of our age. Self-definition. And it's also in all of us because of our sin. So God defines what it is to be human, not autonomy. Two, in relation to God vertically and in relation to the world horizontally, to be human then is synonymous to be made in the image and likeness of God and is the proper definition of humanity. A human is not related to animals in any way, nor to angels, nor to anything else, but to God himself. So philosophically, this is our ontology. This is our being. This is what it is to be us. What does it mean to be human? At fundamental level, and there's more to say because we have to talk about what it means that we are both physical and um, spiritual. That's tied to this. (coughs) This is our ontology, the nature and definition of our being and the image and likeness of God, of the triune God. comments or questions on super simple easy to understand terms and ideas and more and it's it's 806 please feel free to leave we've gone over in fact let me just pray and dismiss us if you want to stay i'll stay here for until my kids are out of youth group and answer your questions lord we uh we thank you for this time and we pray that you would glorify jesus christ and increase our joy and satisfaction and devotion to the Lord. And Lord, knowing that you are working all things for the good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes, because you are making us into the image of Jesus so that he'd be the firstborn among many sons, as you say in Romans 8, and 29. So thank you for this evening, Lord. I pray that you would pour out your grace in us and through us and that we'd be armed with the gospel of grace and love. To speak the truth in love and to tear down strongholds and false ideologies. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, feel free to go if you need to. We'll take questions. One more. Craig. When
1: we say image and likeness, does that include the moral nature of God?
0: When we say image and likeness, does that include the moral nature of God? I believe it does. It is not indicated. I think it's implied though, with the notion of sonship. So you can't just look like dad and not be like dad. You gotta, you gotta look and be like dad. Yeah, it's in reverse. Because we are like God, we are made moral beings. Yeah. Good question. Mike. Can you get the mic to Mike?
1: On on that, that would be the reason why God holds accountable by the moral code. Whether we were believers or non-believers, when he brought down the Canaanites, they had violated that moral code to the max. Same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. So we are held, we reflect in a twisted way, him morally.
0: We know about the morals. It just then, you know, just perverts it. That's right. You're, you're summarizing Romans chapter 1. That's right. Yeah. Every, every human being uh, knows the truth of God and then we suppress the truth, worship and serve the creation rather than the creator, and then are surprised when people don't go our way as, as unbelievers.
1: Uh, Pastor uh, Tom
0: Howell, that's my name. Um, I've been asked to participate in the First Lib Black Experience. Um, that is a 93-page document of perspectives of Black individuals who are oppressed. It covers oppression, racism, intersectionality. Are you familiar that the uh, Flagstaff City Council has voted on that and has accepted it along with the mayor and voted that they support that 93 pages? I haven't even heard of that. So how about, can you, you, would you mind staying for a little bit so I can see that?
1: Yes, because it encompasses exactly what you're sharing. It
0: does not include God. I'm sure. And it's venomous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Thought you might want to know that. I do. I'd like to know more about that. Yeah. Pastor uh, Andy.
3: Yeah. Quick question back on the image of God topic. Um, so, when someone is born again, in what way is the image and likeness restored?
0: Good question. We are, because of our permanent, unchanging standing of justified in Christ, we are at the same time adopted and can now say God's our father. So the likeness is, is restored fully and unshakably. Um, imaging would be, we still represent him, but now we have the capacity because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the word of God and the church family to actually live out as a church in this world. Uh, but that's, that's you can kind of emphasize the sanctification piece in there becoming more like Jesus with ups and downs and troubles and imperfectly good, very good question thank you any other questions or comments that you that's yes
3: I just want to clarify that last part it's like image is with um, sanctification and then likeness is with born again is that kind of how you're associating it? Yes. To some extent, at least.
0: Yeah, and okay. the tricky thing is there, right? Like, when you become a Christian, you don't suddenly, like, look different, but you begin to, your your um, insides are different, so to speak. In other words, you have the Holy Spirit now in the Word of God, so you begin to love and live differently. First, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then your neighbor as yourself. So you actually can now, you can now image him, and your life now actually preaches the gospel along with your words. Whereas, um, when we don't image God, the way we live our lives is a false gospel and it's a false representation of who God is. Thank Very you. good question. I was going to say something stupid, but I better not. <laughs> Any more questions? Anything else? Great, great questions, everybody. Really appreciate it.
3: I was going to say, after you become born again and if you're Baptist, then you also the part of that transit you have a propensity to start craving casseroles and things like that. That's
0: right. Potlucks. Yeah. That's it's right. Phase two. Sorry. I should have kept my mouth shut. It's not a potluck, it's a pot providence <laughs> if you're reformed. Yeah. Stand corrected. Okay, everybody, thanks for coming tonight. Pray for next week. Hope to see you soon.